0: I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. Today's episode is titled the Gratitude Episode. First, credit where credit's due, how an adventurer becomes an adventurer. Second, my weird Greek tragedy experience. Third, the story of me being a homeless teen living for two weeks in a Dallas, Texas Greyhound bus station. Fourth, a note of love from my book editor. Fifth, geeking out with gratitude. Sixth, a Mother Teresa quote and something I'm grateful to have read this week. Y finalmente, a dedication and a request from the trout that I almost caught on the Willamette River the other night. People always ask me, how are you so hardwired for adventure? Like, do you ever have a day where you don't want to go outside? And my answer is not really. If I spend too much time inside on a computer or teaching, I'm going to go explore something or do something or climb something or bike somewhere or swim somewhere. The other day I was biking through a park And I saw this fir tree that looked cool and I pulled my bike over and I put the kickstand down and I climbed up into the lower branches and then pretty soon I was 100 feet up, climbing on thinner and thinner branches, looking out over the park and the river. And like a drug addict, I thought, how did I get here? I guess I go back to my teenage years, climbing a volcano with my dad and my brother Or earlier, doing the wilderness experience for troubled teens in Colorado, something like that. Or maybe I go back in childhood further, think of how much freedom I had when we lived in Seattle. I would bike all around the lake, swim, and explore. Or even younger, when we lived in Arizona, I'd run around in the desert. Or maybe when my dad took a residency in Switzerland when we lived in Switzerland or the south of France in Montpellier my mom would send me shopping by myself to go get food for the family and I would go in a store and I wouldn't know if I would be able to speak the language and I would get this excited feeling just wondering if I'd be successful in my little adventure as a seven-year-old. I guess I could take it back then, but then uh, knowing what I know about psychology, it's probably even earlier in childhood that I was hardwired for adventure, so going back and back and back, if I'm going to give credit where credit's due, I think I'm an adventurer because of my older sister, Hillary. When I was a little kid, Hillary was the older sister that everybody wished they had, She was an amazing, inspiring maniac. To understand Hillary, the first thing you have to know is she doesn't need sleep. She was one of those kids that could play super hard all day long, all evening long, into the night, get called in, eat dinner, and not be tired. When Hillary went to bed, she wouldn't go to sleep. She'd stay up. When Hillary went to bed, she wouldn't go to sleep. She would wait. She might read or something. She might stay in bed maybe for a while, but she certainly wasn't sleeping. For example, when Hillary was a toddler, one night she went to bed, but she didn't go to sleep. My parents went to bed, and they went to sleep. And then Hillary got up. She got up and she went into the dining room and she got a chair. Remember, she's a toddler. And she slowly pushed it all the way across the room to the front door. And then she got up on this chair and she reached to the bolt lock and she undid the bolt lock. And then she moved the chair and she opened the front door of the house. And my toddler sister walked outside, left the front door of the house wide open, went down the walk to the sidewalk, turned left and walked down the street. It was December, winter, middle of the night. My toddler sister Hillary is just walking down the street. My parents wake up because something felt off. You know, parent sense. And they get up, look around the house, and they find Hillary's not in her bed. And then they discover the front door open. And they freak out. And they run outside. And they search up and down the block. And they find Hillary down the block, just toddling along, December, middle of the night. And she's looking at all the Christmas lights. That's why she went outside from the car. She'd seen them earlier before she went to sleep. She just decided that later she'd go back out and look at them again. And she wanted to go when she could look at them on her own. And that's the kind of toddler that she was. And I was less than two years behind her and she was everything to me. My mom describes me as a quiet child when I was young I would mostly stay quiet and watch. I was always observing. Most of what I was observing was my older sister, Hillary. I remember one time, after we moved to a new house, it was this tall, old house on a hill. And I slept in a bedroom that was on the second story. And I went to sleep one night. Woke up in the middle of the night to my older sister, Hillary, shaking me awake. She'd never gone to sleep. She had an idea. She was seven and I was five. And she told me to open my window and I was sleepy so I didn't know what she was talking about. So she reached across me and cranked open my window. And my window stood just above the roof. And she crawled across me and she sat on my windowsill and hopped down onto the roof. She was like, follow me. So then I, I got up and got on the windowsill and hopped down, and suddenly we were on the roof. And she showed me how to explore the roof, climb around on it, up onto the second-story roof. And then she sat down, and I sat down next to her. And we talked, and we talked through the middle of that night. And then it became a ritual. After I'd gone to sleep and Hillary had waited a while, She'd wake me up and we'd go out on the roof and we'd talk and we'd look at the stars and we'd look at the moon. We'd crawl around, scramble, sit again. And it was so much fun. And that became our thing every single night. Until the elderly neighbor, Judith, told my parents that every night in the middle of the night, their little kids were out on the roof where they could fall off and break their necks. And we got in trouble. And our windows got locked shut. And our families went on adventures, but Hillary was always the most intrepid, the bravest. I have this picture of her when she's six years old. And she's jumping over this creek. She's got this huge stick in her hand. And her hair is long and tangled behind her. And I don't see how she's going to land without hurting herself. But somehow she did. Then, when I was seven, my dad took a residency in Zurich, Switzerland. And we explored so many places in Europe. Then, when I was 10, we went back again to Switzerland, Lausanne. And then we went to Montpellier, France, in the south, for a summer. And we explored the city of Montpellier. And Hillary was always the leader. She was always figuring things out. She was 12 years old. And then when she was 14, she did not exchange to Europe. She was by herself there with the family. And she was so brave, and I wanted to be like her. So then, when I'm just 15, and we talk our parents into letting us backpack Europe, When Alan's 14 and I'm 15 and Ellie's 16 and Hillary's 17, the reason we're allowed to go, the reason that all the parents get on board, is because Hillary is going to be on the trip. And Hillary's capable of anything. She speaks multiple languages, she can read any map, she makes quick, good decisions. She was incredibly capable, she was a good student. There was no reason why she couldn't be the leader of four teenagers in Europe by themselves, even though she was only 17. So we went. And there were a lot of adventures, but there's one moment that sticks out to me. We were on a train from the Camargue, in la Sout de france going into Italy, and something had happened internationally. The United States had done something but there was no internet then. Nobody had phones. There was no way we could check what it was. All we knew was that the Italians were angry, and the reason we knew this is that the policia or the military were not sure which, because in Italy, the police and the military are kind of synonymous. They all wear fatigues and have machine guns. Anyway, a group of them in fatigues with machine guns came onto the train. And they started pulling Americans off the train. They were asking, who was from the United States? Who's from the United States? And if they found someone from the United States, they would pull them off the train. And they would grab their luggage and they would open it up. And they would just throw it out onto the platform. Just scatter their luggage everywhere. Just clothes, personal belongings. They were really angry about something. We didn't know what these men with machine guns and fatigues are coming down the train and ripping U.S. citizens off the train, and the four of us are just teenagers. And Hillary turns to me, and she looks me right in the eye. And she says, start speaking French. And she looks at Alan and Ellie, and she says, shut up. And she looks at me again, and she says, French. And I start speaking French to her, and she starts speaking French back to me. And we're just conversing in French. And I'm trying to stay calm, but Hillary's completely calm. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's speaking these long, elaborate sentences in French, and I'm trying to piece together words, interjecting, trying to speak French back to her. And Hiller's just speaking and speaking and speaking in French. And the military police come along, and they walk right up next to us, and Hillary's just looking me right in the eye, just calmly speaking French, And I say a couple words back to her in French. And the military police, they look at us, and they walk on by. And down the train further, they grab the next group of Americans. And to them, we weren't American at all, because Hillary was always quick on her feet. If you're a weirdly obsessive person, me, and you get really, really immersed in an activity that's hard or scares some people, like rock climbing, and if you want to do it way more often than anybody else, way more obsessively, way longer, then you're going to spend some time alone. You're going to have to figure out a way to, say, climb by yourself. So at my local crag, I figured out how to rope solo so that I could run more laps than anyone would ever want to blame me on. And I could climb more feet per day, climb more routes per day, do the same thing 15 times in a row without annoying the person that I'm with. But also sometimes that means exploring and finding your own new routes, things that other people haven't climbed. And at the columns, most of the routes have been climbed. So one summer I started bouldering the small, terrible, short routes to the right, sometimes with my friend Jeff and sometimes just by myself. Summer mornings, solo, nobody else there, me climbing awful routes that nobody else would ever climb because actually they're not that good. To be able to picture this scene, you have to understand that the right side of the columns has about 15 foot boulder routes above a sloping, grassy and rock hillside, so there are no flat landings. So if you fall, you're gonna fall, hit the ground, and then tumble. One morning I'm there by myself, and I'm climbing in a a layback ret, and a layback is really bad to climb by yourself because when you fall, you spin. So it's not just that you fall down; you also spin in a circle as you fall. So there's a twisting motion to your fall But I was climbing a route that I'd climbed before So I thought, ah, oh, I've got this in hand I'll just climb, you know, one go on this And then move on to a new, better, safer route Except I didn't Instead, I went up this surrette And I pressed hard into the layback And when I was almost at the top On the second to last move My foot slipped and I fell But I fell spinning So my body... Spun and I went face out, and I hit my butt on a rock halfway down. So I popped onto that rock, and that flipped my body upside down, and then I was falling face first, and I hit the slanted hillside face first, and I went down into the grass and the rocks, and I hit my forehead directly on a wide, flat, 18-inch rock. And in the middle of that rock was one tiny triangle, This one little piece of stone that stood up. And that piece of stone punctured my forehead perfectly. Just popped the tiniest little hole, about one centimeter high and one centimeter wide. Just a perfect round hole in my forehead. I stood up to my feet, fine other than the little puncture of my forehead. But because there's so much blood to your brain, so much blood in your head, that little centimeter by centimeter hole, that little finger-sized hole, just spurted blood and it was just gushing. just, And so I'm leaning over, spurting blood all over this rock where I've punctured my forehead. I'm spurting blood onto the rock where I punctured my forehead and I don't know what to do. And I'm all by myself and I look to the parking lot and there's no one there. So I put my left index finger in the hole in my forehead and just stop it up. I'm standing there all by myself, my left index finger in the hole in my forehead, stopping it up. I can't remove it because my head will start bleeding badly again. And I look back at the parking lot and there's still nobody there. And it's still early morning and I'm by myself. And I walk over to my Jeep and I look in the mirror I see the blood all over my face and my forehead and my index finger stuck in the hole that I can't do anything about. And I don't know what to do. Who knows what to do in that situation? I thought about driving myself to urgent care to get stitches. I thought about going to the ER, but that seems stupid for one little hole in my forehead. So instead of doing either of those, I just drove home. One handed stick shift, steering wheel, kept my left index finger in the hole in my forehead, got home, told Jenny what happened. She kinda looked at it and thought about it, and I took my index finger out and my forehead started to bleed again. But then she helped me and she superglued the hole shut, and then we put multiple stereo strips over the top, and then I just pressed on it for a long, long time, and just hoped that it would bind that the glue would bind, that the strips would bind. And after half an hour, I took my hand off and the glue held. The strips held. We realized that I probably didn't need stitches. I was probably fine. So I didn't climb for a couple days. I just let my forehead heal. I figured exerting and popping that open and bleeding wouldn't be good. So I waited a couple days and then I went back to the columns by myself to boulder in the morning again. And I walked over to that arete, and I looked beneath, saw that big, flat, wide, 18-inch rock with the little triangle on top, and it was covered in dried blood now, which is kind of rusty brown, but the rock was a blood rock, and I thought I'd better move that in case anybody else tries this arete and flips upside down and falls down the hill and hits this rock face first, which nobody would ever do because, one, nobody would ever climb that route by themselves. And... nobody would ever perfectly hit that rock the way I did so I go to pick up the blood rock and when I lift it off the ground underneath this blood rock are two snakes not one but two snakes are laying coiled underneath this blood rock and I thought this is like some moment from a Greek tragedy and then I thought Maybe the snake spared me. And then I thought, maybe I should be grateful. When I was 17 years old, after I was arrested, I was remanded to the East Texas Life Challenge Rehab and Parole Center. I was supposed to do nine months there in the adult facility But I was way, way too intimidated by the adults in the program to stay It wasn't just weird being the youngest one there It was weird being the only one who hadn't been paroled out of the Texas State Penitentiary And all of the convicts around me Even the ones that had been convicted of smaller crimes scared the, out of me I didn't know what to do there And because it was a parole and rehabilitation program and not a jail and it only had a fence and barbed wire, didn't have guards with guns or anything, I was able to run. So I ran. After a couple miles, I started hitchhiking. My first ride was with a nice Mexican family. They played corridos and a group of us rode in the back of their truck. They gave me a ride for maybe 30 miles till I connected to another highway and they went south. I was going west, at least to one of the cities. I wasn't really sure, but west for sure. My second hitchhiking ride was a little more awkward because I was walking through a town and a deputy sheriff picked me up in his cruiser, said it was illegal to hitchhike. checked my driver's license. I wasn't in the system yet running. He checked to see if I had $5, because in Texas at that time, if you had a driver's license and $5, you weren't homeless. Then he put me in the back of his cruiser, drove me out of town, drove me deep into a forest, opened the door, had me get out, and then drove off. So then I was stuck along this rural highway, In a forest, it was January, it was getting cold. I ended up building a pile of leaves and swimming my way in because it was about 30 degrees that night and I needed to stay warm enough to sleep. For my third hitchhiking ride, I was picked up by this beautiful vintage green Cadillac. The man swung to the side of the road. He was about 50 years old, maybe 55. Popped open the door offered to take me all the way to Dallas. We listened to music on good speakers. He gave me a Cuban cigar, and we smoked and listened to music and drove for a while, and it was really nice. Until he revealed that he was a pedophile, and he propositioned me for a half an hour straight, which wasn't wonderful. But in the end, he didn't touch me. I didn't kill him for touching me. So things kinda worked out. And he dropped me off in Dallas a couple hours later. I didn't know where I was in the city. And it turned out that I was in a pretty bad area. I tried to sleep that night in a hedge. I crawled in, woke up to automatic gunfire. Decided I better get out of that part of town. I hiked to the uh, riverbed over the bridge and climbed down and I slept along a bridge pylon. And in the morning I was kicked awake by a police officer who again checked to see if I had a driver's license and $5 to make sure that I wasn't homeless even though I was sleeping underneath a bridge. Eventually I made it to the downtown Dallas Greyhound bus station. A relatively safe place because for 18 hours a day, I could be inside there where there were security guards, and I could sleep or read or write, and I could eat endless saltine crackers and ketchup packets from the condiments bar. I had a few dollars in my sock, and I allocated $1 a day to going outside of the Greyhound station over to the McDonald's to get two 49-cent hamburgers. And between hamburgers and saltine crackers and ketchup packets, I could survive for weeks. And I did for a couple. At night, the security guards would kick out anybody who didn't have a bus ticket. So I'd be out on the street between 12 and 6 a.m. And that was the hardest part of that time period. Being out with the drunks and the drug addicts. And a few people that were much, much worse than drunks or drug addicts. But I did all right and I made it through. And eventually, after a couple weeks, I called my friend Ben Collect in Eugene, Oregon. And he walked through the halls of South Eugene High School with a can that said, The Bring Pete Hoffmeister Home Fund. And people put money in that can. And my old track coach put $60 in that can. And Ben wired all the money Western Union to me. And I bought a bus ticket. And then that night, when the security guard came over to kick me out, and he knew me by then, I pulled a bus ticket out of my pocket and showed it to him. And that night, I was able to sleep in the warm Greyhound bus station. And in the morning, get on a bus that went across Texas and eventually New Mexico and Arizona and into California. And then headed north to Eugene. And I went home. And I was so incredibly grateful for that ticket, for that ride, and for eventually a new place to stay. I remember being a young aspiring writer and hearing that famous international best-selling author Jack London was rejected 400 times in his career. And I remember thinking about that number, 400, and just being sort of astounded that he was rejected that many times on stories and novels and ideas. But now, only 20 years into my career, I've been rejected more than 600 times. And I've been fortunate enough to publish poems and stories and essays and five books, but rejection's just part of making art. So you get sort of used to rejections or bad Amazon reviews or funky Goodread reviews or all those kinds of things. But since this is the gratitude episode, you eventually have the opportunity to get a letter like this from your editor after you turn in a book draft. Hi, Peter. I finally read the last 60 pages on my flight from New York to Denver yesterday. And then spent the following leg from Denver to Eugene processing that reveal in the last chapter. Wow. Pardon the language, but I think it's effing fantastic. You're right that it's different from This Is the Part, but different in ways I admired and enjoyed. And both books share this incredible ability to dig into readers' hearts and give us no choice but to empathize deeply with the characters you've written. It might be a slightly harder sell in stores, just because the content is somewhat heavier, but I find that I really don't care. It's a beautiful, beautifully constructed novel. This is going to sound kind of weird, but reading it felt almost like cracking open a filbert shell to find a perfectly formed, perfectly symmetrical nut inside. I'm going to have to think long and hard about what, if anything, can be improved upon in the editorial process, Catherine. Since this is the gratitude episode, let's geek out with gratitude just a little bit. What's the benefit of gratitude? Why does it matter? I researched and found some interesting stuff. One study by researchers assigned young adults to keep a daily journal of things they were grateful for. They assigned other groups to journal about things that annoyed them, or reasons why they were better off than others. The young adults assigned to keep gratitude journals showed greater increases in determination, attention, enthusiasm, and energy compared to the other groups. While that shows a clear benefit of gratitude, it also makes a clear distinction. Realizing that other people are worse off than you is not gratitude. Gratitude requires an appreciation of the positive aspects of your situation. It is not a comparison. Sometimes noticing what other people don't have may help you see what you can be grateful for, but you have to take that next step. You actually have to show appreciation for what you have. For it to have an effect. In a different study, subjects assigned to journal weekly on gratitude showed greater improvements in optimism. And that makes sense. But that's not all. Gratitude journaling also influenced their behaviors. For example, keeping a gratitude journal caused greater improvements in exercise patterns. Journaling about gratitude also had some weird physical, psychological effects. After a few weeks, subjects noticed a reduction in physical ailments. So participating in this gratitude project made these people experience fewer aches and pains. I also found a study where a group of Chinese researchers looked at the combined effects of gratitude and sleep quality on symptoms of anxiety and depression. They found that higher levels of gratitude were associated with better sleep and with lower anxiety and lower depression rates. Sleep is one of the many vital things controlled by the hypothalamus. Since gratitude activates the hypothalamus, and in fact our entire limbic system, when we're thankful, it becomes easier for us to fall into deep, healthy, natural sleep. This, of course, has a domino effect on our health, spreading the benefits of gratitude practices even further. For instance, sleep is connected to many bodily functions, And enough of it can remedy anxiety, depression, pain, and stress. Sleep also boosts our immune systems, meaning we become healthier overall. Finally, in a recent gratitude research study, where subjects were asked to write letters to people expressing their gratitude, researchers found that all anxious and depressed subjects who participated showed significant behavioral changes, Using MRI scans, it was determined that not only was there an increase in neural modulation brought about by changes in the medial prefrontal cortex, but subjects were better able to manage negative emotions like guilt and were more willing to be helpful, empathetic, and kind, once again linking the benefits of gratitude to other positive emotions. Finally, two quotes on gratitude, a dedication, and a message from Bob Dylan. The first quote is from Oprah Winfrey. She says, Be thankful for what you have, you'll end up having more. If you concentrate on what you don't have, you will never, ever have enough. The second quote is from Albert Einstein. He said, There are only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. This episode is dedicated to my older sister, Hillary Kinzel, the adventurer who taught me to be an adventurer when I was a little boy. To finish this podcast, a little story. My daughter Rain, her friend Ben Madrid, and I were all camping last November out on BLM land in Central Oregon. It was night and the fire was going, and our dog Bob Dylan, the boy dog Hoffmeister, was pacing back and forth. And Rain said, Dylan's acting pretty weird. And I hadn't really noticed. Then I looked up and saw that Bob Dylan actually was being pretty weird. And Rain said, "Will you take him out along the road and see what's out there. Most of the time, that's a strange person. So I was like, okay. And I walked with Bob Dylan along this road. The weird thing, though was that he wouldn't go in front of me. Normally he runs in front of me and then comes back and checks in and runs in front of me and comes back and checks in. But this time he stayed right on my hip. He'd walk five or six steps and stop. And since he's more instinctual and wise than me, when he'd stop, I'd stop. And then I'd just look around and listen. So we sort of inched our way out toward the bigger road And Dylan would take a few steps and stop, and take a few steps and stop, and take a few steps and stop. Finally, Bob Dylan wouldn't go any further at all. So I didn't. And I clicked my headlamp on. And I looked down this little dirt road, and there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, I noticed something in my periphery. And I swiveled the light to the left, and there was an elk and elk are huge. This is out on an elk preserve, so I've seen a lot of elk, especially seen a lot of male elk at night, coming in and huffing at us, wondering what we're doing there on their property. But this was a pretty big elk. So I saw this elk out to the left, just to the left of the road, and then I swung my headlamp back right, and above a bush was the face of a bear. And I'd never seen a bear out there. So I just trained my headlamp directly on the eyes of the bear. It was sitting just to the right of the road, maybe 25 feet from me and from Dylan. And Dylan didn't even growl. He just stared right at the bear's face. And then as we were staring at the bear's face, I realized, wait, that's not a bear. It was looking straight at us. It was a predator. It was a big face. But it was actually a mountain lion Which is kind of a weird moment When you realize that the big carnivore you're looking at Is actually a different kind of big carnivore Now I knew there were no bear out there Or I think there were no bear out there But there are mountain lions So I'm looking at it and I realize If it's that big it's probably 150 pounds It's a small bear but it's a huge mountain lion And it's staring straight back at us And I realized that it was tracking that elk. And so I was actually a minute too early to see that mountain lion attack that elk. I couldn't swivel my headlamp back, but Dylan moved just a little bit, and the elk got spooked, and it sprinted up into the rocks, and it sounded like a horse falling down and clattering among the rocks, and then it was gone. But I kept looking at the mountain lion. And it just stared at us malevolently like, I can't believe you wrecked my dinner. You pretty much wrecked the next couple weeks for me. And the mountain lion stared at us and we stared at the mountain lion and it took about 45 seconds. And then finally, the mountain lion gave up and he turned his head and he started to walk sideways and we saw his big size. And then he walked behind another bush and then he vanished. I mean, he just completely disappeared. He was so quiet, and he was so stealthy. And I swung my light all over, and I took a few steps, and I couldn't see him at all. He was just gone. So I waited some more, and I looked down at Bob Dylan, and he was just looking out into the brush, and so I just waited with him. I figured when he was ready to go, he was finally safe to go. And eventually he turned around, so I turned around, and we walked back along the dirt to the fire ring. But as we were walking back, Bob Dylan turned to me and he said, ask for a five-star review for this podcast and ask people if they'll subscribe to Boring is a swear word. And my...